Welcome to Dot 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 the Musical, where each week we take a favorite movie, book, or other such thing and turn it into a stage musical. This week we'll be discussing Pride and Prejudice the Musical, but first a little bit about uh, your two hosts and the genesis of this project. Uh, so I'm Jen Fingal. And I'm Haley Backrack. And we met back in 2012. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Back in 2012, when we both started uh, graduate school for dramaturgy. Um, I think my first memory of you was that you were wearing knee-high socks and you knew what OSF was. <laughs> my first memory of you was that you had a Doctor Who phone case. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's a nice phone case. No, and you, didn't you have a TARDIS phone case at that time too? No, I just noticed oh. yours and knew what it was. No, yeah, yeah, that so, was that was good. Instant right. friendship. But um, yeah, so we met in graduate school for dramaturgy, and I feel like my favorite conversations with you were when we would go and see musicals that were adapted from like. I mean, the two that we saw were adapted from animated musicals, uh, and then we'd either spend like the car ride or the bus ride home rewriting it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like those are my favorite. It's like, if, we, if this could be a road trip activity with, you know, for every road trip, I think I would hate road trips less. Yeah. And then we decided, what else do you do with something you like talking about besides turn it into a podcast in this day exactly. and age? Exactly. <laughs> so that's why we're here. That's, that is why we're here. I'm based in San Francisco, and I work for a theater ticketing app, but as my, my day job, and then do freelance producing, dramaturgy, and bookkeeping. And now I record this podcast. Haley, where are you in the world? Um, so I am based in London, England. Um, I'm getting my PhD in English literature, and I do sort of theater criticism and essay writing on the side, um, and in theory, dramaturgy, but not really in practice at this point <laughs> i mean i would say that i but i'd say that your your critic life has dramaturgy like in, integrally like woven into it yeah definitely but i'm not really yeah. working on shows at the moment all right well shall we get into discussing uh pride and prejudice the musical yes So for those of you who may or may not know, Pride and Prejudice is a novel written by Jane Austen. It was first published in 1813 and has been the subject of several pretty famous adaptations. In 1940, there was one starring Laurence Olivier as Mr. Darcy, but I think the classic is the 1995 BBC miniseries with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely as Darcy and Elizabeth. Um, and then there was a 20 2005 version with Keira Knightley. Um, and there's also been a couple musicals, but none of them have really made a super lasting impression, I would say. Some of them, I've heard music from some of them, they're like solid, but I think none has kind of penetrated in the way that you'd think people would be eager to do a Pride and Prejudice right. musical. So the fact yeah. that there isn't one that has become a staple suggests that no one has yet quite captured what people are looking for. Totally. Which adaptation is the one that you return to the most? Um... That's a good. I actually I just rewatched the Colin Firth miniseries. It is delightful. It's so good. I mean, but yeah. it's it's a little long for me to return to. You know, right. it's like you really actually yeah. you have to commit. It took me like several weeks just sort of watching it in mm -hmm. bits and pieces to get all the way through. Yeah. 
So I think in a weird way, even though it's far from my favorite, I've watched the Keira Knightley one more because it's shorter right. and easier to just be like, oh, I'll turn that on. Yeah, totally. I feel like I, I love the Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely one as like a very true adaptation of the book. Like mm-hmm. it follows the book so well. And I love the book and I've read it many times, but I feel like I do also return to the the Joe Wright, Karen Knightley version, mostly because I really, I love the tone that it strikes hmm. and it's just really pretty. It is like, pretty. I love how like visually beautiful and also just um, musically beautiful it is. Yeah. Um, one of, actually one of the Pride and Prejudice songs is one of my alarms in the morning. <laughs> That seems so soothing. It is. So it gently, it gently gets you out of bed. Oh, I need something that's like dramatic and loud to like mm. startle me into awakeness. <laughs> this is like when she's, you know, it's that famous shot where she's like on the, the hilltop and the, she's just, the wind is going through her and it's like, I, I'm not going to pretend to um, sing that um, melody, but it's really beautiful. You can look it up, <laughs> listeners. Um, this actually, this like segues really well into one of my first kind of questions about the yeah. idea of de- adapting Pride and Prejudice, which is, I feel like so much of what is, it's funny being a book, that one of, mm-hmm. some of the most striking elements of the adaptations have been the visuals and that sort right. of the thing that directors, it seems, have found most valuable about translating from page to screen in most cases Mm -hmm. is the ability to kind of depict the English landscape. And that's something that the stage is not awesome at. I feel like it's important to find, I mean, as with any adaptation, I feel like you always need to answer the why, like why, Mm -hmm. why are we putting this on stage? Like what are we gaining from turning this into a musical and what are we gaining from putting it making it a live performance on stage, which I feel like is a question that isn't always answered. Well, Um, I think it's always answered, but sometimes the answer is to make money. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Solid point. Solid point. Um, But I think that's the thing that bothers me the most about like blatant money grabs is what I'm like, but why? Yeah. What have we gained? Yeah, what am I getting from this that I'm not getting from the movie that I'm not getting from like reading this book? Because it's a brilliant mm-hmm. book. It's we have yeah. brilliant film adaptations. So what's the why? Do yeah. you have a do you have a why? You know, I do. I was think it took me a while, but I think I do have a why, though I don't quite know how one would do the why. And I think that what is so amazing about Jane Austen and something that like she sort of shortly after her lifetime, the Bronte sisters, for example, hated her writing. They thought it was too small and delicate and boring. And, you know, that makes sense for sort of Gothic novelists to feel that the very domestic world of Austen was a little too watered down and washed out. But I think now with more time, we recognize that part of what's so amazing about her is her depiction of the sort of intricacies of her society and the sort of Mm -hmm. small things that in a very constrained world of women in the early 19th century had tons of meaning. And so I started thinking about how could you use the songs to sort of explode out these moments in Pride and Prejudice that carry all this complex social meaning that's now lost like the sequence that I always think about is the part at um, one of the balls when like Lizzie's sisters all humiliate her and like Mary starts playing the piano and like right, Kitty yeah. and Lydia are like running around being goons. I think with adaptation sort of managed to convey like, oh my gosh, the chaos, but like, could you find a song that could convey the sense of deep humiliation 
that this yeah. brings to Lizzie, which I think understanding that humiliation is so important to understanding so much that comes next with like Jane and Bingley getting broken up, but we sort of lose Definitely. the sense that like, this is disgraceful. Like this is more than just, right. Oh my God, what an awkward party. Like this is right. They're ashamed of what happens. And so how can you use a song to sort of convey I'm almost thinking of like the the adaptation of Spring Awakening where they use rock music yeah. to kind of convey like these are the feelings in a contemporary vernacular. And I think the goal would be to find a way to do that that doesn't turn it all into comic irony, you know, sort of like Definitely. this is so inconsequential, but they think it's important. You know, right. it's not about mocking the fact that these small gestures were so loaded. It's about yeah. helping us understand kind of how their society worked and using the fact that maybe you can use music to mm -hmm. be less naturalistic and find a way of kind of bringing a more contemporary sensibility to this setting and help us understand like, oh my gosh, that's why this matters or like right. that's what this meant in a different way. Definitely. I love that. I think um, one of the things that I, I'm really drawn to in the book and I and it's been a while since I've seen the Colin Firth adaptation, but Mr. Bingley, not Mr. Bingley, Mr. Bennett's character of like finding just kind of delight in like silly human beings and like mm -hmm. he and Lizzie kind of bonding over that. But also that's one of the reasons he kind of has generosity for his silly wife and, you know, and daughters. And it's something that's kind of a game to him, but he's in mm -hmm. a place where like that can be a game for him because he doesn't, he can do that. And I feel like there's a lot lo larger social implications than he, you know? Yeah, that's exactly what backfires in the end with right. Kitty and Lydia, or with Lydia, is that exactly. he never kind of takes what she's doing seriously until it's a massive problem. Right. And it's interesting to me because I, I think um, I love the portrayals of the family and their dynamic and, like, how there's a lot of love there. There's, like, the closeness, you love and sister relationships and complications but I feel like even bringing out kind of that, that sense of Mr. Bennett's character and like what great implications there are. I don't know. I have like, that's something I'd be interested in seeing. It's not definitely the, the highest thing on the list because there are a thousand <laughs> characters, but yeah. that's something that I, I think about because I think that's something that really struck me reading the book is like, particularly because that's one of the reasons that. I feel like Mr. Bennett and Lizzie bond uh, mm -hmm. It's because they like have this like feeling about this laughability or like can laugh at these people, everyone's characters and like foibles and silliness. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Lizzie understands that there are like greater social stakes um, mm -hmm. in a way that it feels like Mr. Bennett is just like, eh, it's fine. Yeah. 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 I know that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, you can imagine a world in which he's sort of a narrative figure, but I would definitely be hesitant to turn a story that's sort of iconically about women into a right. story about a man. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and that's actually another thing that I was thinking about is like, how much do you, how much interiority do you give Darcy? Because of mm. course the book is all from Lizzie's perspective, but in a musical, yeah. you can kind of give him solo numbers and stuff and sort of to what extent do you keep him as this sort of figure that we have to discover alongside Lizzie mm -hmm. or to what extent do you kind of give the audience privilege of seeing into his head through song before Lizzie understands him fully? Ooh, interesting. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like it, I want to give more space to the women. At the yeah. Beginning. You I know, agree. like, I f so I feel like looking at it, 
looking at this, the the biggest challenges that I was seeing, first of all, is that there are a thousand characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there, there are so many characters, and uh, and there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of scenes. There are a lot of. I was. I just wrote down like all of the events in Volume One, Volume Two, Volume Three. There are mm-hmm. a lot of events and a lot of characters. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and also. And yeah, and I think more than that, because there's been so many adaptations, there's sort of yeah. like already a set, like, oh, if you want to do a two-hour version of Pride and Prejudice, these are the events you include, and this is how you right. include them. And it's like, to yep. what extent do you break away from that pattern or yeah. kind of accept Definitely. like, great, someone else did this work for us? <laughs> right. Well, that's how I feel kind of about the Joe Wright versions. And, and I, is, I was like, oh, I kind of like how he cut down those characters who, or whoever the screenplay adaptation the way that he kind of distilled he like took away Bingley's other sister and her husband the Hursts and it took away Mrs. Phillips and Mr. Phillips and just had Mr. and Mrs. Gardner um, and it felt like it kind of distilled it into a nice character set that I was totally gonna steal <laughs> I think that's legit I think yeah. that's super legit the other thing about character that I was thinking about is that mm-hmm. I think what's hard, I mean, kind of returning to the question of like, how much do we see into Darcy's head? How much do we sort of let a certain character guide us? It's like, how do you find the moments of interiority that become songs in a story that's all about people who A, can't recognize what they're feeling, (laughs) B, are existing within a social framework within which they aren't allowed to express what they feel? Yeah, I, I think you've totally hit the nail on the head. I was, it took me, I was like staring at my notes and I was staring at everything and I was like how what kind of music do you put in this that Mm -hmm. allows for that exact thing yeah and I kind of think that's why there hasn't been a great Austin musical I think that you're right I also think that I so want uh, this musical to be like surprising and delightful mm-hmm. and with something so I think that it's easy to get caught in being like, okay, do we need to have like, does this need to be like super classic golden age musical where the songs mm-hmm. like just totally progress the plot? Does this mm-hmm. need to be more Regency era? Like how, how mired in that style are you? But I don't know. I was kind of, so I think I was thinking in your terms I kind of wanted it to be a a folk opera, but like Ooh. not in the way of like the most happy fella or like Frank Lesser, but like more in the way of like that kind of pop folk sound that we have now. That's like Fleet Foxes and mm-hmm. like and like Lord Huron. I'm kind of I'd be that's kind of, fun. Yeah, I'd be kind of into having that in kind of the same style as like Great Comet or Once. And I was trying to figure out how you do that without just being like, how <laughs> Pride and Prejudice in the style of Great Comet. That raises an interesting question, though, because I think mm-hmm. the key difference between Great Comet and Once is that in mm-hmm. Once, most of the music is in-world music. Right. But then there's some that's just like, that's just uh, almost like mood-setting music. Yeah. Like, but I think there is like space. For, I mean, there's a million yeah. balls. Like right. music actually is really present in their lives, yeah. just not mm-hmm. in the moments when you'd be most likely to sing a song because right like when they're alone there's no music but I think that's kind of why I was drawn to the idea of like using music in fact not as a tool of interiority but as a tool of sort of social interaction and world building yeah. like what if mm. rather than it being the way you express your interior feelings it's the way that sort mm. of society expresses itself in a funny way or like how you Ooh. Like, what if it's actually mostly group numbers in some way and actually very few solos? 
I mean, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense to me. I was I was thinking at first with all of the characters, I was like, should we do sort of a, you know, like fiasco theater like um, there's like five people and they're all like millions of characters, right? Like, should right. we, should you do that kind of thing? And I where think it's that's like, part of what's made the Kate Hamill adaptations really popular is that mm-hmm. vibe of lots of doubling. Right. And I ultimately decided that I didn't care for that because I actually <laughs> really want a chorus and like to know that the world is large and it's, you know? And yeah. Like, and I think almost more than, well, I think this is always a theme in, Jane Austen, but I think it's one that's mm-hmm. lost a lot in Pride and Prejudice because we're so fixated on Lizzie and Darcy is yeah. the social pressure that is continually yes. bearing down. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you can use a musical chorus can can accomplish that so well. Yeah. Um, and I'd be I'd be into that. I'd be I, I feel like I'd I like the idea of a lot of group numbers. I, yeah. I'm still I'm drawn to like stylistically something like a musical style that's more contemporary yeah and, well now i'm picturing like lady lucas like whipping out her like electric violin and like fiddling yes. away during a, you know like get the characters I want, <laughs> I want i want that electric fiddle <laughs> yeah the sort of backing folk band that is their society ready to kind of comment oh upon God. yes the back the backing folk band that is their society and i like, love that phrase maybe that is what the music does is it's the moment yeah. when this sort of Greek chorus comes in and comments on like, Oh, Ooh. this is how these events will be perceived. Like, right. Yeah. And it is. And like, literally if you have it in a style that's more contemporary, that is literally translating it, translating those uh, social uh, strictures or what have you um, into a common, into like a contemporary lens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in, I'm into it. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like in adaptations, especially Mrs. Mm-hmm. Bennett, often becomes kind of the voice of society, and her like yeah. very overwrought kind of reactions right. to things become the mouthpiece for like you didn't marry Mr. Collins, how could right. you? And we're both sort of explained what's going on. What's going on is explained to us, but we're also yeah. distanced from it because she's right. so ridiculous. Yeah, and so to have it be in this form where it's like we get a stronger sense of this is what everyone thinks. It's not just Lizzie's mom being wacky. And I think that also when you have a structure like that, it's much, it becomes much easier to shorthand introduce a bunch of characters. Yes. um, Which I think you absolutely need for this. Um, Yes. (laughs) Because a lot of characters are really important and you have like an A, B, C, you have at least three plots going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, yeah, it's like if they sort of have their through line of their takes on events. So like, yeah. oh, Lady Lucas always reacts this right. way. And like, Mrs. Gardner always reacts this way. Yeah. And that kind of carries them through like establishing mm-hmm. a personality, even though they don't have that much to do within the plot. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, that, uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still stuck on, uh, in, in a good way, I'm stuck on thinking about how, I like that so much better than Lizzie singing her feelings to the audience. Yeah. Because it because just, I just, it doesn't I, make sense for the story. No. And also I think it's important that Lizzie's wrong about her feelings. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and, absolutely. And Jane is also like the point, her character is literally that she keeps her feelings so close to her chest. Yeah, exactly. And I think, re Lizzie it's that we don't want the dramatic irony of Lizzie's singing her feelings about how Wickham's so great and the audience is sitting there like right. hey, 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 you're wrong <laughs> right. 
Well, and that also brings us to the kind of classic, um, any adapting any of our favorite stories is what do you do with all of the famous lines yes. that are so famous that it's, it's like the to be or not to be problem, right? Like, it's yeah. like, do you have that speech? Do you, you can't really cut that speech because everyone's expecting that speech. But the moment people say that speech, then you're like not present in the play anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and so how, how does that work with something like this? Mm-hmm. Uh, like Pride and Prejudice that has a lot of those incredibly famous lines. And do you say them? Do you not say them? Yeah. 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 I mean, and I think I actually, ironically, I feel like the answer is not to sing them. I think mm-hmm. that makes it worse. <laughs> right. It's like for some reason it's like you're, it's like you're drawing even more attention to it yeah. when you put it into song. <laughs> right. It's like you make it just like the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Ironically, I now can't think of any of the famous lines to demonstrate with, but... Oh, wait, I have my, my book, my high school copy of Pride and Prejudice right here that says, in pencil, Mr. Darcy on the side, because mm. that's where I was at when I was 17. At least it doesn't um, say Mrs. Darcy on the side. <laughs> I mean, there's the beginning line, which is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single right. man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And what if... I feel like there is a lesser version of a of our musical where that that's just the chorus of the first song and it's just sung. the most clunky <laughs> verse <laughs> ever. It is a true universe. Yep. <laughs> and like all the things happen around it, and then it's yeah. just like it's just. Like I mean, that is like a point though. Is I like, do feel like a lot of the most famous lines are in narration, so it's easier yes. to do away with them yeah. unless you're doing like a sort. And I guess that is why a lot of the Austin adaptations you see are kind of storybook theater. We're going to narrate because her voice is most present. Austin's voice is most present in the narration. Right. Absolutely. But I think that we can do that by, we can like sidestep that by having essentially a chorus, like by essentially having like a chorus can accomplish that in a way that feels less clunky than having like Elizabeth narrate, Yeah, Um, which feels I don't know. I sometimes narrators work for me, but I feel like in adaptations of books, they they don't. As well, much. again, Lizzie's a bad narrator because she doesn't yeah. understand what's happening. Right. Like you can't it's you true. can't position her as an as a character who's sort of all knowing because so much of the point is that she doesn't actually understand. Yeah. First of all, her own feelings. Right. And second of all, what's actually happening with Darcy yeah. and with other people. Definitely. And also, no one does. So no one's a really great narrator for this. Like, no yeah. character within the play is a great narrator for this. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Do you want to take a brief intermission to talk about our novelty cocktail? Yeah, so if some of you haven't been to a Broadway show in a while, you may not have noticed that everywhere has themed cocktails now. They cost, like, $40, I'd say. <laughs> you have to mortgage um, your house to... Uh... To buy a themed cocktail, but you get a free cup, so... Yeah. Nice if you think of it that way, it's a $20 cup and a $20 cocktail. So we decided in every episode we'd have an intermission where we discuss what our themed cocktail for the show is going to be. So Jen? All right. So this week's themed cocktail, I went and I actually looked up what people would be drinking in like the 1800s. So it, it's the same cocktail, but you can have it hot or cold. And apparently this was mm. called the Warm Heart. But I think you order it warm. The hot cocktail is the Warm Heart. And the cold cocktails, the cold heart. Ooh. I know, right? I feel like I feel like it's helpful. It's it 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 brings out the themes of the play yeah. with with uh, being having hot hot and cold. Uh, exactly, you know, 
feelings. Your, your impressions change based on your circumstances. Exactly. And so uh, I read on the internet that this was said to be a nice cordial for evening parties. Perfect. Uh, or if water was added, it could be used as a refreshing beverage during warm weather. It consisted of lemons, milk, syrup, spirits, brandy, rum, and wine. That sounds like a hangover in a cup. <laughs> I have a question. <laughs> yeah. Which spirits? Just some spirits? Just some spirits. Just some. Just some, like, you know, bathtub spirits. Just, <laughs> just make them backstage. General spirits. Yeah, love it. Um, so that is... Uh, spirits TBD. Maybe it could be the spirit of Christmas past that we just put, put in there for, for some. A ghost. Yeah, it's a ghost. The spirit of Jane Austen enters the cocktail. Yeah, absolutely. It's very alcoholic. <laughs> so that is, you know, so that that is the that is the signature cocktail of Pride and Prejudice the Musical. I like that a lot. Yeah, thank you. I like it too. Others, other side, like intermission note. Mm-hmm. Haley, do you have a, what is your favorite Jane Austen novel? Do you have mm. one? Do I have one? Um, I think it might be Sense and Sensibility, actually. I think I think, I don't know why, because I don't like either of the couples, but mm-hmm. just it's the one that I, when I was reading it, I just got the most totally immersed in and, like, couldn't put mm. it down. Yeah. Um, I also have a fondness for Northanger Abbey. I think that mm. the fact that it's sort of an earlier work and less subtle kind of makes it more fun. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And I'm pretty positive that the reason there's yet to be a good stage adaptation of it because I think in so many ways it's perfect for the stage is because there's like a hundred carriage rides (laughs) and you can't you can't make a carriage ride not look stupid on stage it's true it's very true I was thinking this about Pride and Prejudice actually a huge benefit no carriage rides it's true no carriage rides and a lot of dances a lot of dances yep yeah which I think brings us to how movement works in our adaptations oh yes right because once you have contemporary music do you pair that with like sort of english country dancing right and i kind of think that it is taken for granted that in our this is our these are our dream versions but in my Mm -hmm. like dream version that um doesn't have like i don't know how you'd actually do this but i think i would want something contemporary to go with the music but that was like influenced by country dancing so you don't lose it totally right you don't want it to become like every dance is a joke that they're like grinding in regency dresses i don't want that um i want it to be i i want the dances to be serious and to convey Mm -hmm. that same sort of like um that same sort of this is a strict thing that you know these dances and you do these dances but also that i think they should a lot of romance happens during the dances yeah i think that that's really important and i want that to be a thing yeah it's a chance for couples to get intimate you know it's funny you know how like in old musicals there'd be Mm -hmm. the singing couple and the dancing couple yes it's almost like jane and bingley are the dancing couple yeah like they never get to really talk or sing about their feelings but they have these dances together that stand in for what other characters convey in speech and song right and they just like quietly smile at each other yeah i love that (laughs) and i kind of i kind of think going again with the chorus idea that Mm -hmm. um i have kind of a vision of the chorus seamlessly using movement to help with scene changes oh yeah i think it would be really really easy to have a really clunky there are a lot of settings right Mm -hmm. it's like you start in 
uh, at Longburn. You start at the the house, and then you're going to the country dance, mm-hmm. and then Longburn, and the Netherfield, and then like and they then, go into town. They go to the yeah, Lake District or wherever they go. Yeah, and then they go to um, oh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Pemberley. No, the uh, Rose Rosings Park. Oh, of course. For yeah, Catherine Catherine de Berg. Speaking of settings, that was another question I had because one thing I find kind of hilarious about Pride and Prejudice, and I think maybe a moment that could again be smoothed over and explained by a song, is kind of how Lizzie's turning point is like, wow, he has a nice house. Like <laughs> she visits Pemberley and is like, hang on. Um, that's not, I know that's not actually what happens. <laughs> It's like a slight oversimplification of what happens. Um, The moment is also like so taken, like so in my mind is is her like seeing his bust and the. uh, (laughs) But it is like, a hair. (laughs) But it is like Pemberley has to be impressive, and like like we were saying before. Scenery, unless is not always a forte of stage. I mean, yeah, which is not I to agree. say there are not amazing scenic designers, but it's rare to again. Like, there's so many settings. How could you have a fully realized Pemberley set? I think that there must be. I think that there has to be something where everything else is minimal, and then Pemberley is a reveal, right? Right. Yeah. Or I guess it's you just dig deeper into like. I think what's actually happening in that scene is she's suddenly understanding the context that Darcy comes from. It's not just like, I want this house. It's like, oh, this is what made him. And so in some ways, is it not really about, can you use the chorus to establish that instead? And can you use a song to explain it rather than a house to show it? Definitely. I think that that's true. And I think that that's something where you have Darcy coming into Lizzie's world and like pretty much everyone around him is like, oh, that gentleman is so disagreeable. Like everything about him is awful. And like, he doesn't do much to change that opinion. Nope. Uh, Until, and then until you get to um, Rosings Park, Mm -hmm. is it Rosings Park? Anyway. Yeah. um, Rosings, Rosings. Rosings, Rosings. And then Colonel Fitzwilliam is, like, so agreeable and wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, maybe there's a little bit of a different side of Darcy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, like, you get the... um, The letter. The letter. Well, you get get him, like, professing his love for her and her being like, dude. What? Yeah, I guess it's the proposal and then the letter. Yeah, the the proposal. And then I feel like the letter starts to open up her understand like I feel like Fitzwilliam like starts to open up her understanding but then it's shut down because she discovers that he ruined Jane like Darcy Mm -hmm. is literally the villain in her sister's story and also Um, like the most offensive proposal ever oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) the worst and then (laughs) I was repost intermission now but I feel that's obviously the act one Ending. Yeah, I was I was looking uh, I was like going through all the events that have to happen and but it that has to be the act break. Do you think yeah. do you think the proposal is the act break or the letter is the act break? Ooh. That's my question that's because so we, tough. Isn't it? Because it's like it depends on are you landing on Lizzie's anger or are you landing on Lizzie's confusion? Yeah. And like negotiation. Yeah. And maybe that's a moment where actually you could play into the fame of the story and yeah. end on the proposal 
So right. the audience goes into intermission knowing like, ooh, the letter's coming. Like, right. Yeah. That anticipation of what we know, like we don't need to end on a moment of suspense because the audience already knows what's going to happen and there's no point right. in trying to pretend they don't. So what if we play on that and say like, yeah. end on the satisfying note of anger and the audience yeah. gets to exit being like, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> just you wait, Lizzie. <laughs> just you wait for yourself to be super emotionally conflicted. <laughs> Let's do this. It's gonna get but I- awkward. <laughs> I, f- I feel like the, the letter is is opening up and that is why i think that you that i think we don't get we shouldn't get an interiority of darcy until it's revealed it's like so revealed so nicely and like i think the audience should get that reveal as lizzie does yeah um it'd be sort of amazing if that was the the letter was his first song like if he never sang until that moment i mean that would make sense like that's like because you you got you got no context and then it's like he's um, it's a vulnerable yeah and it's a vulnerable thing yeah and like singing as we've said because it it does represent like your interior interiority like Mm -hmm. it feels like that's that's where it gets vulnerable and i don't think lizzie's there yet either like i don't think and i don't think he could sing the proposal because the point is that that's not real yet i mean it is like yeah. he feels about her the way he feels but he hasn't he can't express it in that vulnerable way Ooh, ooh, and it's like i feel like lizzie can sing before this because she's i feel <laughs> like the the songs are kind of playing along the like social game right yeah which she's like, good at which she's good at and darcy i feel like almost tries to be so above reproach that he just doesn't even care to to like sing and join this game right yeah yeah and i mean so and i think never sing. yeah right i mean and i think that is what she realizes when she sees pemberley is like yeah oh no wonder he thinks he's better than us yeah. he kind of is like not that you know but it's that she sees like oh my gosh well when you're when you come from this when you're surrounded by this mm-hmm. it, like <laughs> yeah and like, Dang. but I, I also think that there is something of a, a it, you know, I think that the chorus and like the people who have known Darcy since he like mm-hmm. growing up and like his yeah. younger sister, um, can also provide an insight into his character yes. that he like we did not have before and Elizabeth did not have before, and that's a great yeah. use of the chorus there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I have a vision of um. You know the the scene in Billy Elliot, the like chair song with the grandma song with the with the chairs. I dimly remember. <laughs> well, there's just this beautiful scene where like there's um, the grandma is singing about like uh, her dead husband, and um, there's actually just this like beautiful movement piece of like these men in the background dancing with chairs, and mm-hmm. um, the kind of like in that vein of like having a chorus I feel like there's a way (laughs) to have them be like moving set pieces and like moving things around um in a way that also like kind of conveys tone Mm -hmm. and like um you know and like that's something that I would really like like I think movement like serves like dual purposes in like the version I want to create one of them is like is the dancing and the balls and um, forming romance in that way um, and also understanding like how that world works. But I think that there's also 
movement can be so great in creating tone and setting and place. Mm-hmm. And I, that's something I would really like. Yeah. I mean, I think the other blueprint there is Hamilton. Oh, right. Yes. I guess the sort of true. constant motion in the background of those scenes. Yeah. And I think that that's, I, I, I admire that mostly because I don't want mm-hmm. any blackouts ever. <laughs> Anti-blackout. <laughs> I am. I'm so anti-blackouts. I I do think, especially in sort of stories like Jane Austen that have the potential to feel very drawing roomy, it's something to mm-hmm. avoid when possible just because definitely. you're already fighting that aesthetic so hard. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think that, again, with like adapting something so famous and that's been mm-hmm. f- famous for, you know, like two centuries, <laughs> that it's how do you subvert expectations and surprise people? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. what is but the also- surprise? What is the delight? Not subvert them too much. I exactly. Mean, it's such a difficult balance. Yeah, definitely. Because you don't want to just be like, we we did this thing and we're going to pull some entirely different meaning out of it that doesn't mm-hmm. actually, that's only kind of there. Yeah. Um, you know, like it doesn't want to be like a freshman, like English majors paper where they're like, the fairy queen is actually about, and then something, you know, weird topic. Like, <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Or as to paraphrase an artistic director, it's called Pride and Prejudice, not F you for liking Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that like doing an adaptation like this, it's how do we explode meaning in a new way? Yeah, um, exactly. How do we mm-hmm. almost translate yeah social codes not Mm. in a condescending way of like oh you don't understand they needed to marry but (laughs) the things that are genuinely i think lost i mean the thing that i think about a lot now i just i want another podcast that is that is snobby professor Haley. (laughs) (laughs) oh god i apologize for cutting you off no that's okay that'll be the spinoff um no but the thing that i think is almost the key, a really key example is um, Lydia and Wickham's elopement. Um, I think people get really hung up on the idea that it's about sex and Mm. lose track of sort of the social repercussions, not just for Lydia, but for the whole family. I think the thing that really we've lost is the sense that this isn't Lydia ruining her own life. It's her ruining all of her sister's lives as well. And I think in the in the Colin Firth one, there's like this really kind of clunky scene between Jane and Lizzie where they sort of say that because it's right. like we have to make this clear, but how? Yeah. Um, and I think I don't again, I don't really have I don't know how you would do it, but it's an example of a thing of like there's lost social context that actually is really important to understand for the story to make sense. And also the way of Darcy fixing it, that he is risking his own. It's not just him being benevolent at no cost to himself. That whole thing, I think, is one of the parts where, like, we think we understand it because we're like, yeah, it's sex, scandalous. It's like, no, it's more than that. Right. The stakes are significantly higher than, like, you can understand from a contemporary lens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that kind of thing where it's not that, oh, you're so stupid, you don't understand it. It's like, it's just lost. The meaning is lost now. Yeah, I dig it. I also, I feel like it's really important to to give the people what they want in that. I think the things that I love about the story are like Lizzie coming to terms and like realizing like how she's feeling and like what's going on in her brain (laughs) and her Mm -hmm. heart. Um, Mm -hmm. Her relationships with her sisters, her relationship with Jane, like Mm -hmm. all of those things I like absolutely adore. 
But like honestly, I also love the romance and gimme. Oh yeah. Well like, oh, yeah. I want some good sexual tension. And I think that's what more contemporary dance styles could also help us achieve. Yeah. Is like, yeah, some good some good sexual tension. Yeah. But also recognizing that like I think part of the appeal is like it's a society where you can't yes. act on it until the last yes. second. Like there is no right. outlet. You can't dissipate the tension by like having them, you know, dance in a really sensual way or something. <laughs> yes. But that makes I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I feel like a good some good sexual tension like that you just you, they can't consummate is like just so delightful to watch or Key. read. It's just Key. It is. It brings it brings me joy and I and I want I definitely want that thread and I still want to keep the romance because it is also it, it is a love story. Absolutely. And I think that yeah. the key is if I love this idea of like the folk music, but like not like dark yeah. folk music. No. Like light, fun, lots of fiddles folk music. Yes. It's, yes. I can't I wish I could remember the quote. Jane Austen in like a letter described the book as like oh, it's like it's too fizzy, it's too light for my taste or something like that. Uh, yeah. Like she it's it's fun. It's a fun yeah. story. It is a fun story. It's a fun story and it's, you know, and it's that also set rom-com like story structures for the next few centuries or I guess, yeah. you know, it's the same sort of like they met and they didn't like each other and then they realized they loved each other. Yeah. And also he as well is not, it's not only Lizzie who has to change. I feel yes. like sometimes you see versions that lean too far and like, then Lizzie realizes she's wrong and Lizzie sees who Darcy really is. It's like, no, he changes no. in response to her reaction to him. Absolutely. It's not just that she understands his context better. It's that he starts acting differently. Oh, definitely. He realized he was being. A yeah. And like, that's, I think that's so important about the, the like anger and the resulting letter is like, <laughs> they both had mirrors thrown up at them. They were like, Absolutely. hey, you know, like, like this is my perception of you. This isn't wrong. Like, this is, you know, this is what's up. Yeah, um, I think both she of said them... very articulately. <laughs> no, it's right. Up? It's like some of Darcy's letter is correct, and Lizzie acknowledges that. And then he acknowledges that much of her critiques were correct as well. Right, exactly. And like, but neither of them would have known that unless yeah. they like said they something see the whole picture right and that also feels like a very true i don't know it also feels like a very true and kind of wonderful bit of satisfying romance and that it's not mm -hmm. all just like bingley and jane met their eyes across from each other in the ball and they just have really wonderful temperaments and they love each other which is great and like yes absolutely and people Perfect. fall in love that way and it's great yeah. and i'm you know it's a good B couple. It's a good B couple. But I like for the A, the a couple has conflict. They have strife and mm -hmm. like, and it's difficult yeah. to communicate. And mm -hmm. like, even though they have, you know, they like clearly are at least like Darcy's very attracted to Lizzie and like, you know, and maybe Lizzie is deep down attracted to Darcy. It's like still complicated and they, they have a lot of stuff to work out, mm -hmm. um, which feels real and satisfying that by the end they do. Yeah, and that the things that improve about them are for their benefit as people, not just yes. for their benefit as partners. Yes, absolutely. It's not that Lizzie becomes a good partner to Darcy, though she does. It's that Lizzie becomes yeah. a better person, and Darcy becomes yes. a better person, and also those better people are better for each other. 
Yes, absolutely. Oh, I like this book. <laughs> well, Jen, I just have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. Will you put a lake on stage for Mr. Darcy to dive into? You know, I really, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no set except for a hole in the stage. I mean, that was like a... At St. Anne's, there was the this production of Let the Right One In, and it was just like a... It was like a pool with glass, like, um, or, or something clear sides so that you could see someone diving in and you could see things happening. So I feel like we could just have a small one. (laughs) That's all our budget is just (laughs) the entire budget. (laughs) Just a minute of, of the actor playing Darcy, like jumping in and then just coming out with that white shirt. Yeah. Yeah, and he has to get because we can see through the side. He also has to be like an Olympic level diver, so he can oh, really definitely. get that arc <laughs> in and above the water. Must must be able to play the electric viola and also Olympic dive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in this day and age, I, actors a, are very multi talented now. It's a gig. It's a gig economy. Like that's that's where we're at. <laughs> that is where we're at. Well, All right. I think that covers us for Pride and Prejudice, the musical. We've solved every problem. I this mean, I agree. It's like, we're ready. Everything's ready. Amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, well I'm, I'm Jen Fingal. I'm Haley Backrack. And please join us in two weeks when we discuss A League of Their Own, the musical. Amazing. All right. <laughs> See you then. Hey everybody, it's Jen. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Dot 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 the Musical. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends. Uh, subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Or if you'd like to continue the conversation, or you have any ideas that you'd like to see us discuss and turn into musicals, you can email us at themusical.podcast at gmail.com. And then lastly, we'd like to specially thank Jen Lin for our beautiful intro and outro music. All right, we will see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>